Okay, um, we were talking about propagation in anisotropic media. This is chapter six. We will continue where we left off last time and likely fall a little bit short of where the schedule says for going today, but that's okay. Um, I added a few pictures to the slides. Most of these are out of your textbook. They're not in the printout that you have, and I'm, I don't think I'm gonna bother to update them on the web just because you already have those figures in your textbook. And um, I don't know, maybe at the end of the semester, if I do this a lot, I'll, I'll publish a completely new set if anyone cares. But um, we were talking last time about solutions to the wave equation in a crystal. And so let me just go back a little bit and remind you that the wave equation in a crystal looks like this. We were able to write this in a matrix form. When we have it in a matrix form, finding solutions means the determinant of this is zero. So we set that determinant equal to zero. Um, it's just an expression that has, well, let's see, it has a ky, kz, a kx, omega, mu, and epsilons in it. Right, so mu's and epsilons are properties of the material. Omega is a function of the source of the radiation, it's the frequency of the radiation. Kx, Ky, and Kz then define two things. They define a direction that the radiation can propagate through the material. The relative magnitude of Kx, Ky, and Kz will give a direction. The magnitude of the K vector will tell you something about how fast the wave is propagating through the material. Uh, omega over K is the phase velocity. And so there is a graphical solution to that that looks like this. And I, there were a lot of blank stares when I put that up, and I don't think I clarified it last time. So um, we call these the normal shells. And what they are is it's the solution to the wave equation written for a particular frequency, for a particular material property, so a particular value for mu and epsilon, as a function of kx, ky, and kz. So it's a plot in k space of k vectors that will satisfy the wave equation for a given frequency. Okay, so that's what it is. And it's a double-surfaced object. So you can see much better on my screen than you can on the projection, but there's a... Uh, an inner surface here and an outer surface, and I added this plot from the textbook that shows this a little more clearly. If we just look in one quadrant, um, you can see the sort of twisted geometry of these two surfaces. And then the last time I drew in one plane what some of these, um, what some of the intersections of the surface and these planes look like. So I said in a, what we call a biaxial crystal, one that has a different value for the index of refraction in x, y, and z, then these two surfaces meet at a point, and in that direction, there's not two values of k that satisfy the wave equation, there's only one. One value of k means only one phase velocity, or one index of refraction. So I could just as, just as easily plot, and in fact, that's what's done in the textbook, I didn't notice that until now. Um, if you're plotting as a function of k, if you divide that, by uh, 
C over omega, then what you have is the index of a fraction. So this surface could describe not only the solutions in k-space, it could des describe the index of a fraction you can have in different directions. Okay, it's typically not done that way. It's typically expressed in k-space. Well, so if you said I want to have a ray propagating through a crystal at a particular, <coughs> a particular orientation, that orientation would define a direction going from the origin of this kx, ky, kz axis in whatever direction you're describing. And in general, it will intersect the surface at two points. And the length of that, or the distance from the origin to that intersection is the magnitude of k that will satisfy the wave equation. There will be two of those means there's two phase velocities. Okay. And as the direction changes, those two phase velocities change. And at particular points called the optical axes, there's only uh, there's their equivalent. Okay, so that's a reminder of where we were last time. We'll develop another, um, another geometrical image that helps us interpret the solutions for the wave equation. Uh, before we do that, we can look at how this, uh, these normal shells tell us things about the, not only the direction of propagation k, but about the direction of energy propagation, phase velocity, and the group velocity. Um, so we know that Gauss's law can be expressed like this in a dielectric where there's no charge, it means that k, the direction that the wave fronts, or the, the vector that's normal for the wave fronts, has to be perpendicular to the electric displacement. Okay, so if we look at um, a cross section of that, of one of those normal shells in one plane, if we have propagation in this direction, that's the k-vector. The electric displacement is orthogonal to that. The wave fronts are propagating out perpendicular to k. But the energy is flowing out in a direction that's normal to the surface. So the pointing vector, s, tells us which, dire which direction the energy flows, and it's normal to the surface. And it's easy to understand that. If you think about um, this being a point source and this being the wavefront it produces. Uh, the wavefront it produces is radiating outwards. Um, and the larger the value of k, the, um, actually the slower it radiates outwards. So it's sort of in, I guess sort of like this surface sort of inverted. Um, but the, the rays propagate out elliptically, and so the energy is flowing normal to those surfaces, okay, which is not necessarily in the direction of k. Okay, in fact, if this surface, this uh, cross-section is not circular, then s and k won't be parallel. So we already sort of discovered this when we said that E and D are not parallel if epsilon is, is not a scalar. And as a result, since S is 
orthogonal to E and K is orthogonal to B. Uh, we already argued that those shouldn't be in the same direction. So if the energy flow is along S, um, it turns out that the group velocity is also along S. If you have a series of, of frequencies that make up a pulse, um, that pulse is going to propagate along S while its wave fronts propagate along K. So it would look like this. The wave fronts would look inclined relative to the direction of the energy propagation. And that's what it would look like in an anisotropic material. In an isotropic material, where this normal shell is spherical, cross-section is circular, you have S and K, E and B both being mutually parallel. So you have one in an isotropic normal material? Yeah, you have, it's, it's spherical, and there's only a single one. Okay, so um, you can sort of use these pictures to describe at least uh, qualitatively the uh, strange properties of crystals, some of the strange properties. You can actually go in and uh, using the mathematical description that describes these surfaces then extract the quantitative behavior of materials. One of the things that we saw that was interesting is I passed around a crystal of calcite first day. Um, you set it on your text, you saw two images of the text, right? Um, so that's commonly referred to as double refraction. I think it's more appropriately termed spatial walk-off. But what is, uh, does anyone have a sense of what causes double refraction? There are, and typically, um, typically it's described as there's two different indices of refraction the light can have in the crystal, so there's two different directions of transmission based on Snell's law. Okay, makes sense. Except that we were dealing with a situation where incident rays were normal. Right? If the incident rays are normal, what is the direction of the transmitted ray? Should be normal regardless of the index of refraction. Okay, so the term double refraction seems to suggest that there's two refractions because of two indices of refraction. Um, and that's not the reason that we saw the two images in calcite. So this effect does happen. And when you tilt the crystal and send light in it, you will get a splitting of the rays uh, based on polarization. But that's not able to explain what we saw. What we saw is more appropriately called spatial walk-off. And you can understand it like this. Um, if this is the surface of the crystal, and you were to um, superimpose on that the normal shells, or the cross-section of the normal shells with uh, the plane of propagation, you would have, and this is drawn for a uniaxial crystal, you'd have the two surfaces producing two ellipses. And while the k-vector is normal to the surface, because you're sending the light in normal to the surface, the tangents to these ellipses describe the direction that the group velocity or the, the energy flows. And so for the polarization described by this circle here, that's straight. That's, that's normal to this surface. But for this ellipse, you can see that 
energy actually flows slightly at an angle. The wave fronts will still be will still be uh, parallel to this interface, but the energy flows at an angle, and that's what we end up seeing is the uh, the effect of the energy being displaced. And so here's a picture of what that looks like. Well, that's because the, sh the ellipse is to the right, but it's the normal to that surface, the tangent, that uh, describes the direction of the energy propagation. So the more the, the more surface bends to the right, the more, uh, the more the wave bends to the left. Yes. So you can think of it as this. Um, this K surface, the larger K is, the slower the light travels through the crystal. So what this is saying is the light travels faster in this direction than it does in that direction. So if the light has a choice of how to get through this crystal, the fastest way to get through it is to angle towards the direction that's faster. And it's a very sort of hand-wavy explanation. Um, turns out that's uh, Fresnel's or Fermat's principle. And you can actually derive um, the behavior of the crystal using Fermat's principle. OK, so there are certain directions where even in an, a crystal, S and K will be parallel. So for instance, if K is along this direction or along this direction, the minor or major axes of this elliptical uh, surface, then S and K will be parallel. So we can talk about the eigenstates of a material. Those are the states in which the electric displacement is parallel to the electric field. If light is polarized in one of those directions, one of the eigenstates, eigendirections of the crystal, then it can propagate through without changing direction, without the polarization changing direction. So if we say D equals epsilon E, and we want these two things to be parallel, um, we can say that a vector times epsilon should reproduce the same vector with some scale factor. Right? So this is an eigenvalue expression. Okay, so for light propagating in a certain direction, what we would find is that um, if the polarization, which is the electric displacement, is in a plane orthogonal to K, um, for a given polarization, there will be a minimum index of refraction. For another polarization, there will be a maximum. And in fact, at any point in between, you could describe the polarization as being uh, some intermediate value. And so you could draw an ellipse that has a major axis equal to the maximum index of refraction, a minor axis equal to the minimum index of refraction, and is the minor axis is in the direction of the eigenvector, which 
sees that minimum index of refraction. The major axis is in the direction of the eigenvector that sees the maximum index of refraction. And this ellipse, then, would tell you what the index of refraction would be seen based would be based on the uh, direction of polarization. Okay, so light that's propagating along K could have polarization anywhere in the transverse plane. And depending on that polarization, it will have different values of K, see different indices of refraction. That's, that's the small index of refraction, the large index of refraction, and you can connect these with an ellipse. If you do that for all possible directions of propagation, you get all these different ellipses, and they, the union of all of those form an ellipsoid, three-dimensional figure. And so an ellipsoid has a mathematical formula that looks like this. And this ellipsoid is a surface plotted in index space, or, or in polarization space. So the x, y, and z axes of this graph, or this chart, would represent light polarized along x, y, and z. When I say polarized, I mean the d vector, the electric displacement vector. Okay, so if the polarization is along x, then y and z would be equal to zero. And the index of refraction seen would be n sub x. Likewise for y or z. And we can use this to find the index of refraction that we'd see for light at an arbitrary polarization state. Okay, so this is our second geometrical construct. The first was the normal shells. They, they were drawn in k space. So you pick the direction that the light is propagating, and you find that there's two solutions that correspond to the different polarization. This is drawn in polarization space. So you pick the direction that the light is polarized, and there's only one solution. But there's more than one direction of propagation that can give you that polarization. Right? If you say the polarization is long x, the light could be propagating in any direction in the yz plane. Right, so they're a little bit, they're used a little bit differently, but it's the same idea. It's this, this graphical solution. Would the direction of propagation be around? Here? Yeah. Well, it's supposed to be orthogonal to the plane bounded by this red ellipse. Okay. It's an so attempt to. So, what we do is, uh, if we had the same situation as before, where you have uh, a known frequency wave, and you have a known material that it's propagating through, and you're interested in solutions that propagated a certain uh, direction or an orientation through the crystal, you could draw that direction, you could draw the plane orthogonal to that, and it will cut through this ellipse, this ellipsoid, producing an intersection that's elliptical. Okay, and that will tell you the index of refraction that you'd see for the light polarized um, along any angle in that transverse plane. Okay. And the minor axis of that ellipse and the major axis of that ellipse would be the eigenpolarization. Yeah, but um, <coughs> you said for any x, y, or z, the prime index of refraction, what are we waiting for? 
OK, so let's do it. OK. Uh, so let's find the angle of direction of the optical axis. We'll use the index of the index ellipsoid to do that for lithium niobate. So lithium niobate is a, um, is a nonlinear material that's commonly used in, in electro-optics. Um, I give you nx, ny is equal to 2.3, nz is equal to 2.2. Okay, so first let's draw the index ellipsoid. We have all the material, all the information we need to do that. We have the three axes. X, Y, Z. Typically, materials have small birefringence. You see it's only 5% um, birefringence. I'm going to exaggerate. So I encourage you to do the same when I ask you to draw things in the homework. I really don't want to see things drawn to scale because everything will look spherical. OK, so uh, what's important here is NZ is less than NX and NY. So I'm going to draw it a lot less. Let's say that's NZ. And then NX and NY are the same, and they're much bigger. So to draw this stuff in three dimensions. But, um, it's going to look like a ball that you squash. Onesie. Which is not, it's not what I was able to draw. OK, so find the angle of the direction of the optical axis for lithium niobate. So the optical axis is the direction that light propagates. This is showing the direction that the light is polarized. Right? So the polarization is orthogonal to the propagation. So what we want is the optical axis means um, there's only one index of refraction. So with the normal shells, it's where the two shells met. Here, if I pick a direction for propagation, I said that I can then define the plane orthogonal to that as the plane that the polarization will be in. And I can find the intersection of this ellipsoid in that plane. That will be an ellipse. Okay, what shape should that ellipse be if my propagation is along the optical axis? It should be circular, so that regardless of the polarization direction, I get the same index of refraction. You probably can't tell from my drawing, but you may be able to tell from at least the uh, the values given, what plane is circular? It's the xy plane, right? So <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't know if there's any point in continuing to draw this on the board. Um, okay, so consider the intersection of the xy plane and this squashed ball. You have a circle. The direction normal to that is along z. So the optical axis is along z. Um, we'll see in a minute by definition 
if two of the indices are the same, we always define those as x and y. The other one we always define as z. Okay? And how many optical axes are there? Is there a different direction where I could also have a circular ellipse? No, there isn't. There's only one optical axis. We call this a uniaxial crystal. Only the single axis. So whenever we have a uniaxial crystal, the optical axis is always going to be in the z direction. Because by definition, the z direction is the one that's different than the x and y. If you're propagating along that, the polarization doesn't actually see the difference. Yeah, so it says it's uniaxial. It says it's negative uniaxial. That means the z index of refraction is less than the x and y. So if the z-axis has an index of refraction that's greater than x and y, we'd call it a positive uniaxial crystal. Okay, so the index of refraction that light that's propagating along the optical axis sees, independent of polarization, that means you shine light along the optical axis, it doesn't do anything interesting. It doesn't see double refraction, it doesn't have spatial walk-off, it doesn't have its polarization changed as it goes through the material. It's very ordinary. So we call that polarization, or that index, the ordinary index of refraction. So that's what that O means, N sub O, means the ordinary index of refraction. That's always the index of refraction that light propagating along the optical axis. So if something's not ordinary, it's extraordinary. That's the E. So if it's going to spatial light propagating along the z-axis, it's called ordinary. The polarization is called ordinary. And it's propagating orthogonal to the optical axis. Okay, so let's say let's say it's propagating along y. Uh, what's nice there is now I can draw the XZ plane in two dimensions and make more sense. At least we'll be clearer. What does the uh, index ellipse, ellipse look like in XZ? Like this one? Or like. Uh, yeah, yeah, so it looks like that. Um, Okay, so there's two principal polarization states, two eigenstates. They're um, along x and along z. Those are the directions where if light is polarized in that direction, it's, um, well, it's uh, electric field and it's electric displacement are parallel. Okay, so the energy flows in the same direction as the k vector. We don't get the spatial walk-off. Okay, so in those two directions, there are two different indices of refraction. This one is Nx. This one is Nz. Which one of these is the same as the index seen by light propagating along the optical axis? Nx is. If it's propagating along Z, the polarization's in the xy plane, and the index seen is the ordinary index. Okay, so this 
is the ordinary index. This one is the extraordinary index. Other way around. NO is bigger, so light travels slower. It's polarized along X. I usually write it as V is C over N, but yeah, C is VN. Smaller. Okay, um, so in a uniaxial crystal like this, regardless of what direction you propagate, there will always be, oh, the plane that is orthogonal to that direction of propagation always has to intersect the xy plane. Right? So there will always be one polarization state that's ordinary. But the value of the extraordinary index can vary. It can be as small as it is here, or, so that was for propagation along y. As we tip the propagation up, by the time we get to z, this ellipse has grown until it's a circle. Right? So the ordinary index is ordinary, it doesn't change. The extraordinary actually is a function of the direction that you're propagating through. So we'll see, and it can be a little confusing at times, but we'll see n sub e, and that's the index along the optical axis, the index or polarization along the optical axis. And we'll also see Ne of theta, which means an index that, well, we'll, we'll do a problem where we have that. Um, let me wait until we have an example that I can point out. Okay, so that was a fairly simple example. Let's do a little bit more challenging one. Uh, let's find the direction of the optical axis for topaz. Okay, topaz is a biaxial crystal. Here's the value of nx, ny, nz. They're three different values. Um, by definition, or at least by convention, I should say, the x index is always less than the y and is less than the z. There's a, always a certain order that you will see those expressed in. So let's draw the index ellipsoid for topaz. It's also a squashed, like a squashed ball, but it's squashed by different amounts in x and y and z. Um, so the x direction is always the flattest. The z is always the fattest. And finding the angle, of the direction of the optical axis, is not as simple. You can't just look at it and say, well, it's got to be 
polarized in the xy plane. Because in the xy plane, what we have is uh, an ellipse. Yeah. This is x. That's y. for propagation along z. If I tip the propagation towards let's say x. That's well no, let me let me do y first. If I tip it towards y, this plane that's intersecting the ellipsoid is going to tilt up and it's going to go from this to something different. Uh, how is the light, so if I, if I have polarization that's initially along, or propagation initially along z, I can be polarized in x and y. If I tilt the direction of propagation in the zy plane, I can still have polarization along x the entire time. So I would expect that this point on the ellipse doesn't change. Okay, so, um, the orthogonal direction is always intersecting the same point on the ellipse, but whereas I used to have see an intersection along y and an intersection along x, as I tilt it, um, the intersection along x isn't changing, but the point where I'm intersecting the ellipse along y moves down in the yz plane. Right, so it might start out like this. By the time I get to the xz plane, it will have changed to look like this. So this, you can think of it as getting stretched out. Nz is bigger than Ny. So as you tilt down, this is propagation. This is the polarization. The polarization is initially along y and had an index of ny. And as I tilt down in the zy plane, the direction of propagation, the polarization ends up along z, which is a higher index, so a larger. So, okay, sorry. so that, that makes it for the system in the ribbon. Yeah, so this line represents tilting k from uh, z hat to y hat. Okay. So what we're looking for is a particular angle where this ellipse is not elliptical but circular. Right? And it started as an ellipse that had its major axis along or its minor axis along x, and the major axis just got longer. So there's no direction in the zy plane which that will happen. Um, so given that, can you figure out what direct what plane the optical axis has to be in then? It has to be in the zx plane. Okay, so let me draw the um, index ellipse in the zy plane. Or the zx plane, sorry. 
Okay, so for the polarization that starts along Z, I'm sorry, so the propagation is along Z, polarization is along X. As I change the direction of propagation, the polarization goes from X to Z. produces this ellipse, or this uh, so let me see. If K is in this direction, D is in this direction, and the ellipse traces out the uh, index seen by the light polarized in that direction. But it's also possible to have polarization along Y, and this time that's, that's the one that's not changing as I change the direction of propagation in the ZX plane. So that's a constant, and it's a value that's in between that of X and in NX and NY. So it's at some intermediate value. So if this is nx, this is nz, and that's where nx was. ny is in between. So I will draw that in green here. And it's a circle. So what I've got is this. Propagation at an angle theta with respect to z. That means that angle is theta as well. And so I can already argue that the optical axis has to be in the xz plane. And it's going to be along directions where the two different possible um, indices of refraction are the same. So the optical axis It's unfortunate the way I do that. Let me it wasn't supposed to intersect. I mean, it wasn't necessarily supposed to intersect right there. It's just by chance. So let me Well, so this is a direction of polarization here. Um, I'll call it the direction of polarization of the ordinary ray or the optical axis. And so the optical axis then is going to be orthogonal to that.
Okay, so we can write this red ellipse as x over nx squared plus z over nz squared is equal to 1. The green I can write as x squared plus z squared is equal to n y squared. And in fact, I can say that um, the value of a point on this red ellipse here, I'll call that n sub theta. It's the polarization that is the extraordinary polarization, simply meaning it's orthogonal to the ordinary polarization. But it's not the value of any of the particular major or minor axes of this ellipse. Um, and it's going to change as a function of theta. Right? So n sub e of theta is going to be the distance to this ellipse. I don't need this right now. So I can say that x is any of theta times this point times cosine of theta. Y is any of theta sine theta. Right, so it's like expressing this in basically uh, radial coordinates. You can plug these values in up here. And um, What value do I need an e of theta to equal along the optical axis? Yes. So this red ellipse has to cross the green ellipse. The green ellipse always has a, uh, an index of ny or a radius of ny. So I'm going to replace any e of theta with ny. I'll factor it out and say uh, 
1 over oh, ny squared times cosine of theta over nx squared plus sine theta over ny squared. Thank you. I said y, I wrote x, I meant z. <laughs> equals 1. I can solve that for theta. Solve that for theta, and that's the direction of the optical axis. I'm constraining. So this is just a general equation for this red ellipse. Correct. When I plug in that any of theta equals ny, um, that's, that's constraining it to lie somewhere along this green circle. So that happens at key points. Um, because I have these functions squared, I'm going to end up getting a plus or minus value. That means there's two possible directions, right? There's, say, plus theta and a minus theta. There's two optical axes. And in this case, if I plug in those numbers, um, I can get 20.8 degrees the direction of the optical axis. And that's always in terms of z? So it's always going to be in the x and z plane, and we typically measure it with respect to z. Okay, it has to be in the x, z plane by definition, the way nx is less than ny is less than nz. And so specifying a direction is just a matter of specifying the angle with respect to z. The reason we do it that way is because in a uniaxial crystal, X and Y are degenerate, so when you measure an angle, we measure it with respect to Z. Uh, which is positive? Well, you're always going to get plus and minus the same value, so uh, you know, plus 20.8, minus 20.8. Okay, so that was a biaxial crystal. Um, okay, so let's review. If a crystal has different values of nx, ny, and nz, how many optical axes? Two. Two. Call it a biaxial crystal. If nx and ny are the same but different than nz, how many optical axes? One. One. What if nx equals ny equals nz? How many optical axes? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's degenerate. It's infinite. It's an isotropic material. Any direction can be considered an optical axis because the The index of refraction will be independent of polarization in any direction. Okay, so let's see if we can relate that to the microscopic structure of crystals. There are 14 different lattice structures. We defined into seven different classes. Those classes are shown here. It's cubic. And so there's, I guess, like, uh, what there's body centered, face centered, interstitial are the three different uh, sort of intermediate or different uh, configurations of a cubic lattice. But a cubic lattice is one where the, the molecular spacing in each direction is the same, and the angle of these crystal axes are all 90 degrees. So you can read the chart as well as I can. I think the graphic shows it pretty clearly. Tetragonal just has um, the, 
the cubic lattice extruded or expanded in one direction. Uh, orthorhombic has it in two directions, different, uh, different shapes, so it's a rectangular box, if you like. Uh, hexagonal and trigonal are similar in that the planes, the crystal planes are sheared, so the angles between these crystal planes are not all 90 degrees. Um, and then you get more combinations of the side, uh, the unit cell lengths being different in the different orientations and the, uh, the angles of the sides of the unit cell being different to give you these different, um, these different classifications. Which classifications would likely produce an isotropic material? Okay, cubic because there's no orientation dependence. Uh, anything else, maybe? No. Uh, just cubic. How about um, uniaxial? Tetragonal has uh, just the symmetry broken in one direction. Yes, of course. Yeah. Hexagonal and trigonal also just have the symmetry broken in one direction. So you can see that here. Uh, the, the sides are different in one direction, but the, uh, and here the angles are different in one direction. So you can probably guess the rest would be biaxial. So there's some connection between the microscopic material properties and then the macroscopic optical properties. Uh, this shows in much better detail than what I was able to draw. Um, the index ellipsoid of a uh, biaxial crystal. So it's still not, maybe not completely obvious, but it's squished different amounts in the different directions. This blue line represents the direction of the optical axis. And in that direction, the orthogonal plane that slices through this intersects the index ellipsoid in this red ellipse, which happens to be circular. For that direction. That's one axis, right? So there'd be another one along there, and I just I didn't draw it for, for clarity here. Yeah, it'll be exactly the same. It'll be the same angle, just in the other direction. I mean, this is symmetric. There's mirror symmetry here about the Z. Y plane. So uniaxial, um, I said, look like a squash ball. Right, so this is the index ellipse for a uniaxial crystal. I've drawn in the optical axes along the Z direction. Um, is this one a positive uniaxial crystal or a negative uniaxial crystal? So positive means the extraordinary ray has a higher index. The extraordinary ray, okay, the z direction, yeah, the z direction is larger. It's positive. The z direction, the small, shorter axis, is negative. Okay, so um, the examples are just getting more and more complicated. 
Um, and a caveat, my solution to this has the right methodology and the wrong answer. And uh, I spent the last like two hours trying to figure out why I had the wrong answer. I, I think I figured it out, but I didn't quite uh, get to the point where I could put the proper solution in the notes. Um, okay, so let's use this construct, this index ellipsoid, to figure out um, about light propagating in some arbitrary direction. So I picked 111, um, which sounds like a nice simple direction. You know, it's, it's equal components x, y, and z. Uh, so this is a direction of propagation. So the k vector has equal components in x, y, and z. But Mike is a biaxial crystal. Okay, so in reality, while this is a nice numerically simple choice, there's nothing special about the, that direction. Uh, in fact, it's, it's the solution will be completely general. Okay, so the question is then, what are the two principal indices of refraction that light propagating in that direction will see, and which polarizations are they? So first let's figure out just graphically how we can use the index ellipsoid to figure this out. And then let's go through the math that describes that graphical solution. What's that? Well, over here what we were doing is trying to solve for the optical axis where the two indices of refraction were the same. And here, that's not going to be the case. And also here we have a direction of propagation that is not, I can't just draw the intersection in XZ or XY. And so the intersection is going to be more, more complicated, less obvious. It's not going to correspond to numbers that are written on the board uh, for any of the axes. But the basic idea is the same. Um, there's some direction. Now it's a defined direction. We're not trying to find the direction. We're told it. So it's equal parts along X, Y, and Z. So the polarization needs to be orthogonal to that k vector. So that direction of propagation defines a plane in which the polarization is in. Um, let me draw a new system. So I've got this index ellipsoid. I've got propagation in some direction. That defines the plane of polarization. Polarization has to be in that plane. So where that plane intersects the ellipse, I will get an ellipse. So where it intersects the ellipsoid, I will get an ellipse. Okay, that ellipse will have a major and minor axes. And those will be the two possible indices of refraction that the light could have. And then I can find the directions of those major and minor axes. Okay, and that's, that's what I'm being asked to do. Okay, so here's our ellipse, ellipsoid, I should say. It has different 
semi-axes in x, y, and z. The plane of polarization is contains this vector r, which has to be orthogonal to k. So k dot r has to equal 0. Right, so if k is in the 1, 1, 1 direction, and r is x in the x direction, y in the y direction, z in the z direction, I have 1 times x plus 1 times y plus 1 times z equals 0. So this is a plane that's orthogonal to that direction. OK, so I have a mathematical description for my plane. I have a mathematical description for my ellipsoid. Yeah. I will. Um, and so the, the combination of these two, the solution of these two equations, which, by the way, I just solved this for z, plug that in. Here's a single equation. This is an equation with two unknowns. Right? I can plot it as a two-dimensional trace of the ellipse in x and y. Now, it turns out that as x and y vary, z is also going to vary. Right? So I can um, plot it with, with two free parameters, and then there's, there's a variation in z along that plot. And once I find, um, once I have this two-dimensional ellipse, I can define the index of refraction in any given direction as I'll call it r, because it's the radius of that ellipse. So I can say r squared equals x squared plus y squared plus z squared. And I can maximize and minimize r, define the maximum and the minimum, and figure out what are the values. And that will tell me the two principal indices of refraction. And I can say, what are the values of x, y, and z that produce that maximum and that minimum? And those will give me the principal polarization direction. Well, it is, but it's just we have functions that are messy, or at least um, difficult to do by hand. So this is where I bring in Mathematica. You can do it numerically using MATLAB. Um, okay, so see if we can find the error here. I defined the parameters of mica. So nx, ny, and nz. Then I define those uh, constraints. So this first one is the ellipse, the ellipsoid. Second one is the plane of polarization. And the third one is the value of the index of refraction or at different points along that. Um, at different directions along that plane. Okay, so I solve those three things simultaneously, those three constraints. And what this is going to give me, I have um, three equations, but I have four unknowns, right? I have R, X, Y, and Z. So I can't completely solve them, but I can solve, for example, for R in terms of 
x and y and z. Um, and in fact, I can solve for everything in, term, in terms of one variable. So I was able to solve for r, x, and y in terms of z. And so that's what this expression is. So what this is saying is as you vary z, right, so what are the possible values of the index of a fraction? You can see it's inside a radical, uh, uh, square root. So as z increases, I get two possible indices of a fraction that represent the two intersections of this green ellipse with a plane of constant z. And as z changes, the distance from the origin to those two points of intersection change. That distance is r, which I've solved for as a function of z. I could have solved it as a function of x or y, and then imagine sweeping a plane through an x or y. Okay, so basically what I want to do then is maximize this as a function of z, minimize it as a function of z, and that will give me maximum and minimum index of a fraction. And then just ask the computer what values of x and y correspond to that value of z. So just as I solved for r in terms of z, I can also solve for x in terms of z and y in terms of z. Um, and that was actually done here. We solved x, y, and r. Okay, so um, that's what's done right here. The solution is maximized with respect to z. I called that value of z, z max. I called the value of the index of a fraction there, r max, the maximum value of r. Then the solution was minimized as a function of z. I called that value z min, the index of a fraction there, r min. Well, that's there. And then, I find the x and y values that correspond to those solutions, those values of z. So here I get them. So this r is telling me about the index of a fraction. It occurs at a certain value of z, which it's solved for here. Now I found the values of x and y. So I found the direction of the polarization that gives me the maximum and minimum indices of a fraction, and I found the maximum and minimum indices of refraction, and I just package that up a little bit nicer here to list the index of refraction and then a normalized uh, cosine vector, a normalized uh, unit vector that describes those polarization directions. Okay, so that's the math behind the method. So commonly when you do things like this in Mathematica, you can easily trust the results. That can be problematic. I decided to um, produce some graphs that look like this so I could walk you through the graph. And in the process, I discovered that it looked kind of funny. These two vectors didn't look orthogonal to each other. They should be. You can look and inspect that or actually just calculate the dot product of those two vectors. are not zero. They're not orthogonal. So it's saying my ellipse is not, not an ellipse. It's some other, some other shape. Um, okay, so that was, a, that was an issue, and it took me a while to figure out what was going on. Uh, the problem is, 
the system was not constrained to require z be between the minimum and maximum values. At least I think it's related to that. I simplified the system to one that was easier to understand, and that issue came up there. Okay, so the general method is right, but the numbers that are shown there as the result is not. No, you can do this this week's homework. Well, all the homework you can do. I shouldn't say that. Um, you, sh you should start making plans to use Mathematica or Maple or whatever your favorite uh, program is for dealing with analytical expressions, because there will be certainly this week you can use it uh, to guide you. I'll want you to step back and explain what's happening because you're asked to prove some fairly um, messy equations. Um, later on, there will be homework that is like this where you're really going to want to use something like this in order to focus on the method and not just sit there writing pages and pages and pages of you know, maximizations and constraints. Okay, so questions on the method? All right, so... Um, we found over there the direction of the optical axis for a biaxial crystal by looking at in the, in the xz plane. We first argued it had to be in the xz plane. And then we found the index of refraction as a function of the angle. Well, you can do the same argument in a uniaxial crystal. In a uniaxial crystal, the index of refraction as a function of angle is a function of angle. And it's going to vary as the propagation direction deviates from along the z-axis. Okay, so we can write a general formula. There it is. For the index of refraction as a function of angle in a uniaxial crystal, where the angle is the angle of propagation relative to the optical axis. So in a uniaxial crystal, um, that should be an E, not an O. But in, so in a uniaxial crystal, um, the xy planes are degenerate. Or the xy axes are degenerate, so we can plot the index ellipsoid in the xz plane. It be the same in the yz plane or in any, any plane that contains the z-axis. Um, and then we can ask, what is the index of refraction of a field polarized at any angle in that plane? And that will give you the index of the extraordinary ray for light propagating at an angle theta with respect to the optical axis. There will also be another possible index of refraction. That's the ordinary ray for light that's polarized in the xy plane. So in a uniaxial crystal, no matter what direction you're propagating, you have one polarization that's in the xy plane, one polarization that's out of the xy plane. And together, those two uh, are orthogonal to the direction of propagation. So we'll consider this ellipse in the xz plane. 
and for light propagating at an angle theta with respect to the optical axis, the index of refraction for the extraordinary ray is the distance from the origin to a point on the ellipse in a direction that's orthogonal to k. So this angle theta, this angle theta. We go through the same argument we went through with the biaxial. Um, here's our expression for the ellipse. That should be an E. We use, again, x equals any theta cosine theta, z equals any theta sine theta. Plug those in, and we can solve for, uh, or we can express that with the index of refraction seen by the extraordinary ray on the left. And on the right, there are parameters of the crystal and the direction of propagation. Okay, so this n sub e is different than this n sub e of theta. This is the index for light polarized along z. This is for light polarized some direction towards z, some component along z, but not entirely along z. Okay, so this is a standard notation used. It's a little confusing, um, but that's how it's used. So if it's, yeah, so if it's, no, it's 90 degrees. If it's polarized along z, this red theta is 90 degrees. Propagation's in the xy plane. And at 90 degrees, right, uh, cosine theta is 0, sine theta is 1, and e of theta equals ne. So this represents the maximum value, or the minimum, the most extreme value the extraordinary rate can have for its index of refraction. And this represents the ordinary. So it's always going to be somewhere between the ordinary <coughs> index and the, the, the extreme extraordinary value. Yeah, this is supposed to be an NE. Yep. The properties. Direction, the direction of propagation. Okay, so um, this can be used to calculate how light refracts into a crystal. We talked about double refraction before, but we talked about it as sort of not the reason that the calcite sought two images. Um, but if you do have light coming in at non-normal incidence, it will bend going into material that has a different index of refraction. If it's an isotropic material, there's only one index of refraction, you can use Snell's law which of course you probably know in this form up here, but um, really what Snell's law tells us is that the wave fronts, um, or the, yeah, the wave fronts have to be continuous across this boundary. You can't have a wave front that has a discontinuity. What that means is the com component of the K vector along the boundary is the same in the material and outside the material. So if this represents your k vector going into the material. It has a component along the boundary of k sine theta. Remember, k is n times k naught times sine theta. In the material, the parallel component of the k vector is n k naught sine theta, where we're using the angles and the indices in the material. So there's a k naught that cancels on both sides. And saying the k vector has to have a parallel component 
it's the same on both sides of the interface, then it's equivalent to the stating Snell's law in that form. So if you have an, well, there's supposed to be a circle drawn on here that represents the index ellipsoid for a isotropic material. So it's just circular. The intersection of that ellipsoid with the plane of, of, uh, plane of incidence tells you the, um, the k vector has to point to a point on that circle. So if we multiply that n, that index ellipsoid by k naught, then it gives us possible values for k in the material. And in order for the parallel component to equal what the parallel component was on the outside of the material, there's only one particular angle at which the k vector can be. Okay, so that would be more clear if I actually had the circle drawn there. So let me flip over here. This represents an anisotropic material. This is actually a, is this a uniaxial or a biaxial? Can you tell? It is uniaxial, yeah. But don't worry if that wasn't obvious yet. You have to stare at this stuff a long time before things become clear sometimes. But um, okay, so this is a material where there's an optical axis that's in the plane of incidence uh, and in the plane of the surface. And so the index ellipse in that plane of incidence has, there's an ellipse that looks like this for the extraordinary ray. So it's changing as a function of angle. And the ordinary ray, uh, the ordinary ray is polarized towards you, right? And so its polarization isn't changing as a function of angle. So I actually what I'm plotting here is the normal shells, not the index ellipse. Okay, so if the parallel component of the k vector inside the material has to be the same length as it was on the outside of the material, and that's drawn here, then you can just drop a vertical line down, and there's two points where that intersects uh, these, these two uh, surfaces of the normal shells. Those are the only possible values of k that are solutions to the wave equation. So k has to either be this vector or that vector. So that's how you can apply Snell's law graphically in a material. It's a little bit trickier to just use this formula or just look at the formula and know what to do because in a material, um, the index of refraction in the material for the extraordinary wave is a function of the angle. So you can't just solve for the angle that the light will propagate through uh, without including it in that, that value of the index. Um, just a, one other, one more slide before we wrap up, because um, it cover it's a nice break until next time. Um, looking back at the normal shells, we said that the uh, group velocity was in a direction that's tangent to the surface. That's how we started out today. Well, in a biaxial crystal, the surfaces are singular, and there's only a single point. 
they conically implode on a point right there. So the gradient of the surface at that point is degenerate. It's like finding the gradient of the top of a cone. So the group velocity is not uniquely defined there. In fact, what you have to do is you have to take the limit of the group velocity as you get closer and closer to that point. And what you have essentially at that point, I should probably have a zoom in here, but you have a cone, conical surface, <coughs> basically where, well, that's way too big. Um, you have two ellipses like this. And so you have this this angle here and in three dimensions that's a cone and so the direction of the group velocity you can now imagine if you revolve this in three dimensions uh, actually is conically symmetric and so what you find is for propagation along the optical axis you get what we call conical refraction the light actually spreads out you can think of it a little bit like um, double refraction or the calcite example, the walk-off, where one polarization walked off, only now, because it's along the optical axis, the direction that that polarization should walk off is degenerate. In any direction, it should walk off a little bit and it kind of spreads out. So some interesting properties um, that we can understand using these two geometric constructs, the normal shells and the index ellipsoid. Become blurred. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So you find that by well, not really, because the, the crystal head needs to be polished first in order to set it on the material, in order to see that. So it's not so simple. Um, yeah. Okay. Next time we'll talk about optical activity. Um, so we're basically one lecture behind what's in the uh, in the syllabus, which is fine. I've got catch-up dates.